It's 9th of May, Dien Pabiedi, Victory Day. And so today, looking at the Kremlin War in two rather different ways. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. It has to be said, this is a day in which I actually like being in Moscow more than most. It's really quite an amazing one. Um, there's patriotic music blaring out on all the streets. There's little sort of couples, young couples wandering around in their little khaki pilotka sidecaps. General sense of a truly national event that, sure, the Kremlin pushes it and the state media and all the other sort of apparatuses which the Kremlin has at its disposal. But when it comes down to it, this is something that is celebrated because Russians want to celebrate it. The parade, likewise, I mean, again, look, I'll be honest, there's an element in which there is still that seven-year-old boy inside me that uh, just generally regards as inordinately cool these great, huge, slab-sided chunks of metal that groan, grumble, squeak and grind across the, the, the paving stones. But nonetheless, even beyond that, I mean, this, it's interesting that this is a parade that very much has acquired a formula. Um, although, actually, it was a, a grey and, and rather rainy day for a change. Usually, the Air Force has made sure of the blue skies by seeding dangerous clouds with dry ice to make sure they, they precipitate their loads in advance. But anyway, so the skies may have been grey, but nonetheless, it was the usual parade. And that's, as I say, the whole point of familiarity. And the interesting thing is, obviously, it's, it's aiming at creating a sense of timelessness. But when it comes down to it, I mean, there, there was a Victory Day parade in 1945. And then there wasn't until 1965. And then 1985, 1919. It's only from 1995 onwards that this has actually been a regular annual event. And so it's really quite interesting the extent to which, ranging from the pompous enunciation of the commentator that sounds much more Soviet than I would think of as modern, um, all the way through to just simply the, again, attempt to create this sense of familiar ritual that I think is really important. Now, of course, look, geeks and spooks are going to focus on little details of new kit. Personally, I was actually quite disappointed that, that there had been some talk that this time they would take these um, Uran unmanned ground combat vehicles, in other words, basically ground drones, and actually drive them under remote control through Red Square. Alas, they obviously decided to chicken out, and instead we just got them being driven through the square on flatbeds. But anyway, apart from that kind of detail, yeah, it, it was the usual kind of thing. But the interesting thing is not so much the parade and the usual question about who went there. And this time it was really striking. There was only one uh, foreign dignitary there. And let's face it, when your, your big foreign dignitary is the Tajik president, then you're not really doing that well. But maybe, maybe it's COVID. Um, maybe in part. 
But anyway, beyond that, it's the whole question that this brings up of the issues of the sort of the memory conflicts and the ways in which the Great Patriotic War, as World War II is known by the Russians, is actually mobilised as an instrument by the Kremlin, both for domestic political control and legitimacy, but also internationally. Now, look, I talked about this to an extent in what was, I thought, actually a very interesting web discussion that took place with uh, under the auspices of the Henry Jackson Society. And I don't want to just repeat myself from that. I will include links to that and other relevant things in the programme notes. And likewise, I don't simply want to recycle the podcast I gave a year ago in which I talked about Victory Day. So what I really want to do is take a look at this issue of memory politics or even memory wars and not just to sort of talk about how Russia is using it, but to give some sense as to maybe we could actually respond or how should we respond in such a way as to take this, some of the sting out of it. First point, look, there is absolutely no question, as I said, the Great Patriotic War is a very, very big deal for Russians. And although I know there's usually this um, frankly rather spiteful rejoinder about, well, it's their only achievement in the last century or whatever, that's clearly not true. But nonetheless, I mean, it is a really big national triumph and also a painful one. I mean, of the estimated 26.5 million Soviet war dead, some 14 million were Russians. And although, as people sometimes point out, yes, the Belarusians, the Ukrainians and the Armenians lost a higher proportion of their population, which is in a way not surprising given where the actual fighting took place, but that really doesn't change anything. That was still 14 million people dead, one hell of a bite out of the demographic pyramid. And no wonder that when you have, you know, every single family has its tales of people who didn't come back, there is this sense that this is something that has to be remembered. But at the same time, of course, there is also absolutely no question but that the Kremlin does indeed use it. First of all, it uses it to justify this notion that Russia has a special role, an exceptional role in the world, and one that essentially was bought with the blood of 26 million Soviet war dead. And that's just something worth dwelling on for a moment, because they do have a tendency to bring upon themselves the mantle of victor and the mantle of victim, and not really recognise the role that was played by other nations. And, and that is true, and that is absolutely on the Russians, on Putin and the Kremlin at least. When I say Russians, I don't mean ordinary Russians. And it's quite interesting, actually, that in his speech for Victory Day, which is, I don't know, 85% pretty much the same each year. So the important thing is to try and pick up what little nuances and modulations there may be in the 15 or so percent that is perhaps slightly different. It's worth noting that, that Putin made a point of emphasising the wide range from which the defenders came from, geographically, ethnically, religiously. But on the other hand, he held back from actually making this explicit. He didn't specifically say, for example, as you could entirely legitimately and frankly very fairly said, Ukrainians and Belarusians and so forth. Now, okay, he was talking 
on a, a Russian national holiday to a Russian audience. But to be honest, I mean, that would have been classy, first of all. But secondly, it also would have demonstrated the extent to which he wasn't trying to squeeze out the other nations. So in this respect, I mean, it is clear that in this, this, this is used as a way of trying to make this point that Russia deserves to be treated in a special way as a great power, not because of its objective economic, military, social, whatever indicators, but in some ways that it bought that status by, as it would frame it, saving the world from fascism. And there is also the fact that the Kremlin clearly uses it as a way of beating the war drums, of using past military triumphs and also tragedies as a way of warning against the fact that, oh, this, this is still so easily just around the corner, and that is why we need to think of ourselves as a beleaguered fortress and this is not the time to be thinking about reform or change in pace or change in direction or whatever. Again, let me turn to his speech, which I jotted down. You know, he made this point about, uh, well, first of all, talked about those who are plotting new aggressions against Russia, as implied, cannot be forgiven or justified. Well, again, there's no mention of who the those may be. So we're left with a clear assumption that we're talking about whether it's the evil Ukrainians or the Poles or NATO in general or whatever. But nonetheless, again, just making this uh, allusion to the fact that there are enemies in stark contrast to the fact that actually at the moment Russia is in an extremely secure position. And frankly, most Russians do not see themselves as being under threat. But anyway, he went on later to talk about, unfortunately, attempts are being made to deploy a large part of Nazi ideology. And again, implying that this is by the people who are against Russia, though he talks about terrorists and radicals. Now, again, this fits in with a much, much wider and much, much more pernicious propaganda campaign, particularly one that is directed towards Ukraine which is still being presented as essentially a hotbed of fascism. Now, look, there is a, a problem, frankly, with, with the extreme right, including groups which, frankly, are fa neo-fascist. And they have disproportionate impact. But disproportionate impact does not mean dominance. It means that, you know, for, for a relatively small bunch of unpleasant individuals, but because they are a highly militarised one, they have a military unit in some ways of their own, and they also have a certain political support base, they're, they're more visible, they're more present than, frankly, I would like them to be. But the idea of representing Ukraine as some kind of neo-fascist state is the, the crassest and most dangerous of, of, not even caricatures, because caricatures implies you're actually just simply exaggerating something that is there. It's a flat-out lie. And again, in this respect, Putin is doing the classic thing of trying to bring it all back to the Great Patriotic War, almost as if he is implying that somehow Ukraine represents a military threat to Russia. Spoiler alert. It doesn't represent any kind of threat. So this is sort of definitely an, an attempt by the Kremlin to turn, you might say, certain notion of the Great Patriotic War and with it this sense of Russia beleaguered and therefore Russia you know, having to fight, turning it away from being just simply a historical issue and turning it into, shall we say, living history that is still very, very current. And it manifests itself in all kinds of issues, which one also then finds reflected in the West. There are those people who very, very 
eagerly, sometimes aggressively engage in, shall we say, memory disputes with the Russians. And this ranges from, well, I mean, one can even look at the calendar. When the Russians talk about the Great Patriotic War, they are talking about the period 1941 to 1945. In other words, they don't consider the period of 1939 onwards. In part, is that a way of trying to diminish the role of the Western powers, of trying to diminish the idea that anyone else was involved? Well, possibly so. But let's be honest, this dates back to well before the Putin era, indeed well before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And although it's obviously up to every country to decide what its particular historical parameters are, and it's interesting that the Ukrainians now use World War II, in other words, 39 onwards, um, as, as their particular sort of struggle. But nonetheless, you know, even in, just in terms of what you call it and when do you actually place it, these become disputed issues. Even the question of whether it's the 8th or the 9th of May. In Western Europe, after all, it's 8th of May that is VE Day. Whereas 9th of May, actually 9th of May, ironically enough, is Europe Day. As you can imagine, that's widely celebrated. The fact that the Russians celebrate it on 9th of May, again, is sometimes presented as being some kind of bloody-minded statement by the Russians. In fact, it just simply reflects the realities of time zones. That by the time the news of the unconditional surrender of, of the Germans had come through, it was past midnight in Moscow. So that's why it's the 9th of May. But all of these things become fraught with all kinds of wider meanings. They don't just simply become things that happen. Why? Well, because the wider leitmotif about all the, the memory debates over the Great Patriotic War is about blame is about the extent to which people are eager to either present the Soviet Union, and thus by extension Russia, as being the victims of Western machinations, the degree to which, would, as we all know, Churchill and co. wanted to see the Nazis and the Soviets rip each other to pieces, and therefore actively encourage that. Or, sometimes it's the other way around, as we all know, Stalin encouraged the Nazis and was actually their, their great friend because he wanted to use them against the Western allies. Now, the trouble is that these have become much, much wider issues. And as I said, I think it is worth stressing once again, this comes from both sides. We have Russians pushing all kinds of often ahistorical narratives that push well beyond the boundaries of what is provable. And likewise, we have many in the, above all the West who likewise are creating these, these rather unpleasant narratives because they're trying to say that basically the war was the Soviets' fault. Well, the war wasn't the Soviets' fault. The war was, well, Hitler's fault. Or if you want to make it into wider historical themes and trends and processes and forces and the Treaty of Versailles and whatever, fair enough, but me, I'm happy with sticking with it was Hitler who'd done it. And again, one can understand why Russians become so irate and indeed hurt when they are basically told that this terrible war that killed so many of their families in the past was somehow their fault. It doesn't take us anywhere. And I think this is what I really want to end this segment on is saying, OK, so, so what should we do about this? Well, the first thing is precisely to recognise the extent to which these struggles tend to be about interpretation and intent rather than fact. 
They are absolutely about, well, Stalin wanted X, without actually being able to present documentation or whatever that proves that. It's just about what you think Stalin was behind. History is an art, not a science. It's actually, as much as anything else, we have to be honest, a reflection of today's concerns, today's assumptions and today's values in the past, as it is actually a kind of painstaking process of factual archaeology, let's say. So let's let's be clear about this. We all have rights to our opinions. However, if we can't actually prove them, opinions are what they are. And so that feeds really into to my second and most substantial and well, I say substantial, substantive rather, but also in some ways most banal point. There is a very useful uh, general maxim for use on the internet and on social media in particular. Do not feed the trolls. In other words, don't engage with people who are clearly just out for a fight because you're not going to be able to convince them. It's not that you're going to present your rational arguments and they will retort, upon my soul, you have argued that well. I realise that I was wholly wrong. No, they will just simply misinterpret what you say, misstate it, create some kind of entirely irrelevant parallel or whatever else. The, the troll's toolkit is an exceedingly capacious one. But the point is, when you engage with the trolls, then you turn something that should be a trivial irritation into something that's much, much more substantial. And I think this is something that we should recognise with these kind of memory conflicts. They become conflicts because we choose to let them become them. And we shouldn't. Well, first of all, because we are not going to change the Kremlin's opinion. It is not that Putin is merely misinformed about historical fact and contemporary geopolitics. It is actually either that he genuinely believes this, in which case, again, we're not going to convince him otherwise, or he doesn't necessarily believe it, but he's presenting this as a useful political instrument. And once again, he's not going to back down from that just because you've made some jolly good points. Secondly, so what? So what if on the whole the Russians choose to believe a narrative that exalts their own heroism and their own sacrifice over everyone else and presents themselves as the, the champions of civilization against the, the brown plague of fascism? It might be irksome when we think about all the other people who sacrificed in order for, for this common victory. But is irksome really that important? I mean, let's be honest, um, Britain does not get bent out of shape because the Americans celebrate 4th of July. I mean, if, uh, if other people want to have these celebrations, that's fine. Now, of course, if they then seek to impose that on others, or if they use that as a rationale for behaviours that are unacceptable, if they then say it's because we think that Ukrainians are fascists and we're afraid that they're about to attack us again, that, for example, we will permanently annex the Donbass to Russia and build up massive military bases there, well, fine, but we act on what they do not what they're saying. So, you know, let's just accept that it doesn't necessarily matter. And let's be honest as well. The Russians may be an extreme example, but they are hardly unique in overplaying and mythologizing their roles in the Second World War or indeed other conflicts. Then we should remember the extent to which if we try and push back, actually, this just simply empowers the Kremlin. This is in some ways, I don't know what you could think of it as tar baby politics that the more we push, the more we get stuck to them, 
the more we actually create precisely the kind of apparently existential civilizational disputes on which the Kremlin feeds, because this is part of its central fundamental narrative, which is precisely that we, the arrogant totalitarian West, and yes, they do use that expression totalitarian, are trying not just simply to change what the Russians do, but to change what how the Russians think. And of course, actually, we are trying to do that if, we, if we're trying to kind of convert them to, to a different perspective of the war. So we should realise that this really isn't going to do us or anyone any good. And the final point is, look, for most Russians, they don't really see themselves as being in some kind of ideational conflict with the West. But nonetheless, they do see often the things that are, in effect, responses to Russian memory politics. They don't see what the Kremlin did to start it. They see our response, not least because the Kremlin shows them our response, and they see it often as a slap in the face. And that is really something that's problematic. The Great Patriotic War means a lot more to Russians than it does to pretty much any Westerners, I would suggest. In some ways, it's, it's more like an article of faith than it is an interesting piece of past history. I remember when I was in Moscow in 2014, and at the time, Western leaders who had been invited, and in some cases I think had accepted invitations to come to Victory Day Parade, then decided not to, precisely because they weren't sure how to act if, through Red Square, marched some of the troops who had just been involved in the annexation of Crimea. Now, I actually had a suggestion, which I will, and this is just a cruel, cruel tease, um, which I raised in my previous podcast, and if you want to know what it was, you can go and re-listen to that. But the interesting thing was, although some countries did better at others than others at trying to still demonstrate the proper and appropriate respect to the Russian people by attending other side events and leaving big wreaths and all the other kinds of things. But nonetheless, I was really struck by how many times in my interactions with ordinary Russians, they were not angry, but hurt. There was this sense of quite why on earth are you spitting on the memories of all the defenders of civilization? And one would try to explain why, but it doesn't matter. I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of them and there was only one of me. How on earth could I possibly sort of turn that tide? The point is this, they do recognise what we do, but they often misunderstand it. And therefore, if we get involved in these kind of struggles, we run the risk of simply, again, speaking to Putin's narrative, to this notion that somehow we are Russophobes who actually dislike them not as a state, not as a regime, not as a series of policies, but as a people, and that we wish to delegitimize their historical memory. So in other words, there is nothing really to be gained. If we absolutely have to, fine, then we can push back on specific points if they bring those points, shall we say, onto our soil. But to a large extent, let's go back to this maxim. Don't feed the trolls. Don't give in to temptation. The whole point is so much of Russian foreign policy is precisely carefully orchestrated trolling, trying to get a certain response out of us. The most effective thing we can do is to deny them that satisfaction. And speaking of denying satisfaction, I think I'll end the first part now. When we come back, I'll talk about actually the physicalities of the Kremlin at war. 
Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. If one looks at the Kremlin itself, this massive red brick fortified complex of 28 hectares or 70 acres uh, in, in expanse, with everything from arsenals and museums, churches to government buildings, it was clearly built to be a defensible structure. It was built at the time of the Renaissance, actually, and in fact, it really does show the marks of an Italian Renaissance fortress, because at the time they were regarded as the, the principal military architects. And in, even if one looks at, for example, the shape of the swallowtail battlements, they very, very much are reminiscent of the Castello Sforzesco, the Sforza castle in Milan. But the point is that although it was built as such... Actually, the Kremlin has only quite rarely really been a fortress in any meaningful sense. In other words, in, in, in battle. In part, this is about Moscow's location. In part, this is about the, the nature of the conflicts. I mean, obviously, it has been in, involved in all kinds of fighting from when the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth occupied Moscow in the 17th century to obviously when it was stormed by Bolshevik Red Guards in 1917. But what I wanted to look at, though, is quite what they did with it during the Great Patriotic War. A war where actually, it has to be said, however picturesque, Renaissance Italian battlements were not likely to be of any use. The Kremlin, after all, had become you know, a key Bolshevik stronghold all the way back to the, the revolution and all the way back to when they actually moved the, the capital of the country from St. Petersburg and Leningrad back to back to Moscow. And with it came Lenin, came the Latvian riflemen who were sort of his Praetorian Guard, bodyguards and so forth. And you know, over time the Bolsheviks very much stamped their own particular mark on this complex. Indeed, for a long time the walls had actually been whitewashed while the Soviets brought them back to their original red. Imperial markings and insignia were chiseled off walls Great glowing red stars were affixed to the tops of many of the, the towers. Obviously, a lot of the churches within it, I mean, this was a complex that was in many ways a sort of not, not, not just a fortress, but also a little city within a city, uh, were, were demolished. I mean, there, there were 31 of them in 1917. By 1941, there were only 14 of those left, and frankly, most of those were either closed or, or repurposed. I mean, I think, for example, there was a monastery became the Kremlin Hospital and then eventually was, was bulldozed, that was the Tudor Monastery. So it had become very much a, a centre of, of, of the Soviet leadership, obviously much, much more of a secure location. Before the revolution, people could fairly easily just go in and walk around much of the complex and in, enjoy the grounds and things. It became a very sort of secure location, not least because certainly for, for in the 1920s, quite a lot of the Bolshevik leaders actually lived within its grounds. Um, 1930s, that, that, that would diminish quite, quite strikingly. And by 1939, there were only 31 people still actually had their official uh, residence registered there. 
including Stalin, though frankly he spent more of his time at his country residence at Kuntsova. Anyway, so 1941, the Germans have invaded and you know, there is a clear and serious offensive drive towards Moscow. And the Kremlin is therefore under threat, both from air attack, but also from the possibility that, in fact, the Germans will, will take the city. And obviously anyone who's travelled in from Sheremetyevo airport, you know, you pass that point where there is huge tank traps to mark the closest that the Germans got to the city. And Hitler had actually reportedly, at least, personally ordered the creation of a special unit of engineers, of sappers, who would be, whose role was precisely to demolish the Kremlin when it was captured. He didn't just want to seize this centre of, it had become sort of icon of, of, of Bolshevik power, he actually wanted to symbolically erase it from the earth. Of course, the main risk, certainly in the earlier years, was precisely of air attack. Now, Moscow itself had quite extensive uh, rings of air defences, artillery, barrage balloons, searchlights, air aircraft in, in the patrol and so forth. All of that was there. That's fine. But what about the Kremlin itself? Well, they certainly did place uh, anti-aircraft guns particularly sort of heavy machine guns on the roofs and such like within the Kremlin. But what I thought was always really interesting was they also relied to a considerable extent on maskirovka, in other words, on deception. The whole complex was very, very artfully camouflaged to look like just another city neighbourhood. Now, of course, the problem is that because of the way that Moscow is built, very much kind of radially, so that in some ways the Kremlin is the, the centre of the bullseye and on a particular loop of, of the river Moskva, that only goes to a certain extent. But still, particularly sort of at night, a, a bomber pilot you know, is, is depending on often really quite quite difficult cues to know exactly where over a city he is so the idea was anything that, that could help confuse and distract the better so what did they do first of all they took down the red stars which are the glowing red stars actually which had previously been over atop many of the towers and also because many of the towers of the kremlin are you know very very distinctive in their shapes what they did is they, they sort of built plywood structures, like carapaces, over many of them, precisely to obscure their, their silhouettes. The big main buildings within the Kremlin, which had these large sort of flat green roofs, well, those were repainted often, like rust red or brown, to look like regular tiles, or in some cases, almost to give the impression that actually there, that there was roads and paths there. Others acquired wooden wings and annexes, again, everything just to conceal their shapes. The thick walls of the Kremlin, the big outer walls, they too were painted such as, from above, they looked like streets. So that, again, actually, you're trying to basically just break up the silhouette of the very distinctive architecture of the region. From the side, they actually had, they, they made it look like rows of buildings, apartment blocks, complete with fake doors and windows. And across the Aleksandrovsky Gardens, which kind of flanks the side of the Kremlin, they actually laid a fake canvas street to a nearby embankment, again, just to, to, to make things confusing. Key thing, of course, was the Lenin Mausoleum. Again, a very distinctive shape and obviously sort of a, a crucial one, even though they had evacuated Lenin's body well away from, from, from the potential fighting. And this, though, was again masked by a sort of fake 
two-story building, which is actually made up of wooden canvas that was painted. But what about Red Square? This huge, broad, cobbled and very, very distinctive location. Well, again, what they did is they, once again, they painted large amounts of it with roofs and streets. And then later on, actually put in mock buildings into Red Square, editing to try and break it up. And through that, both the air defences and also the camouflage, the Kremlin actually was pretty much safe through the course of the war, even though it was very much deemed to be a particular target by the Germans. It was actually only bombed, and this is a very, very small fraction of the number of raids which were launched against Moscow overall, but it was actually only hit eight times. Five times in 1941 and then three in 1942. In total, 15 high-explosive bombs, 151 incendiaries and flares. And it, overall, within the Kremlin, 94 people were killed. But again, that is actually in some ways deceptive because actually the largest single casualties came in August 41 when a, a large 1,000-kilo bomb hit the Arsenal building right next to an anti-aircraft machine gun station. And then at another point, when a 500-kilo bomb hit the courtyard outside the arsenal, just as people were, were heading into bomb shelters. I mean, 41 people killed in, were killed in that incident alone. So in some ways, actually, on the whole, this, this was pretty much minimal. Um, there was a bit of damage to the Alarm and Spaskaya Towers, but not really that great, in, in part because the Kremlin had its own little military fire brigade detachment. So one way or the other... They kept the Kremlin safe. But of course, no one had known how successful this would be. It's also worth mentioning that even as back in the 1930s, they had been building a command bunker in the Ismailova neighbourhood off to the northeast. This is the splendidly named Reserve Command Post of the Supreme Commander-in-Chief. It perhaps isn't quite as austere as one might have thought from calling it a command bunker. It was actually thoroughly luxuriously appointed as... I'm sure Stalin would expect with sort of wood panel quarters for him, even an auditorium. And most crucially, I mean, that was connected to the Kremlin by a 17 kilometer long underground tunnel down which Stalin and his lieutenants could be spared in their ZIS limousines in time of crisis from inside the Kremlin all the way to the command bunker without coming out. Now, obviously, much like the Moscow Metro, a lot of this was dug by Gulag convicts, many of whom were then subsequently transferred to the hardest of hard camps, generally in the high north, precisely so that they could be worked to death, so that they could not then reveal what it is they'd known. This was the Stalinist system at its most self-preservatory, which after all was its primary attribute. And there's a whole warren, frankly, of underground bunkers and tunnels, particularly many that were built after the war. Indeed, there was a whole series of special little metro lines that were built. But this was after the war, as I said, and more than anything else, a product of the nuclear age. And thus, I'll talk about them another time when we're not so much focusing on Dien Pabiedi and the Great Patriotic War. Hurrah! Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. 
This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.